thrusters won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Sits and sieves, captains and commanders, you've tuned to the guard frequency, and as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 127 of the Best Damn Space Sim podcast ever, and it was recorded on Friday, July 8th, and made available for download Tuesday, July 12th, over at guardfrequency.com. I'm Jeff. I'm Tony. And Lennon has once again been kidnapped by badgers. So with us we have Ostron. Hello, Ostron. Hello. And what do we have this week? Well, in this week's Squawk Box, we start our Gentleman's Engines. That didn't come out quite right. Uh, Moving on, on the flight deck, we see what news has landed from your favorite space sims as we cover the latest from the subscriber Reverse the Verse and a lot of general goodness for Star Citizen, how to finally make friends in Descent Underground, updates on Infinity Battlescape's patching system and texture pipeline, and we respond to a listener's mayday for news on limit theory. Next, we debate esports in open world space sims. And finally, we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. And that takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on to the show and see what's coming through the squawk box. Hey, you boys, need a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Crypter, 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 this is Tony saying welcome to the squawk box, everyone. Regular listeners of the Squawk Box segment will recall that we here at Guard Frequency have been maintaining something of an informal checklist of all the gear we Earthlings are currently crafting in order to cobble together a working interstellar spacecraft. We've covered, on occasion, tractor beams, lasers, ion drives, and even a long-shot attempt at a warp drive. But today, I'm truly excited to bring you a solid piece of space propulsion that's currently being designed for the upper stages of the United Launch Alliance's Vulcan rocket. It's a truly revolutionary engine. It's expected to weigh less than 50 kilograms and measure less than 70 centimeters. That's 400 troy granules and 9 furlongs in the classical system. And will run solely on liquid hydrogen and oxygen which will eliminate the need for heavy batteries and pressurization gear, and will extend the expected lifespan of operation by an order of magnitude. And for once, thank God, somebody gave it a cool name. It's the ICE, the I-C-E, or the Internal Combustion Engine. Oh, you heard me. Engineers at Roush Fenway Racing, a championship NASCAR team, have designed a 600cc 26-horsepower engine that will provide a high delta-v orbital propulsion for future spacecraft. Uh, she's a straight-six single cam with coil packs from regular old GM 5.3 liter V8. Uh, she got a compression ratio of 6.5 and she'll redline out about uh, 8,000 RPM. I'm not making any of this up. By recycling the waste heat, cutting down on the various accoutrements required for traditional orbital engines, and using off-the-shelf parts as much as possible, the stodgy old internal combustion engine may have found its next life as the motor that powers practical asteroid mining and routine orbital cargo transfer. Your move, Elon Musk. So the uh, we've been trying to kill the internal combustion engine for, you know, 10 or 20 years now, electric cars and all that kind of stuff, but oh no, 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 it rises yet again. You know, if you look at the engineering of the internal combustion engine, it's a very, well, I wouldn't say efficient uh, design, but it is robust. 
And if you think about yeah. colonization on other planets like Mars, having those designs and that robustness might be just what we need instead of all these high-tech solar goody uh, electrical. Yeah. You know, the the damn thing will run on hooch. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, not this one. This one you need liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, but those are two, you know, very basic chemicals. You don't need hydrazine. You don't need any sort of advanced chemistry manufacturing capabilities. You know, if you can boil out elemental hydrogen and elemental oxygen out of whatever rock or, you know, water you have around, you can make rocket fuel and you can run an orbital transfer with this thing. It's clearly 26 horsepower. You're not boosting orbital payloads with this thing. But once you're in orbit or in interplanetary space, this thing can actually point you in the right direction. Did they give any sort of... Uh, amounts on the liquid hydrogen and oxygen involved? Well, what they did say was the accoutrement that I referred to with normal rocket engines, you need a whole bunch of different things to keep the rocket fuel pressurized. So you have to like lift helium into orbit to maintain a a constant pressure in the fuel tank. You don't burn the helium. That's just there to keep the Mm -hmm. fuel moving. Well, with liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, you just eliminate all that. You need batteries in order to produce the electricity to run all the pumps and stuff. Well, if you're running an internal combustion engine, you start the engine with a battery, and then you produce electrical power from a generator attached to the internal combustion engine. So goodbye batteries. Same with the solar panels. You would need to you know, run orbital transfer engines. Goodbye solar panels. Just run off the internal fuel. So whatever you used to use, uh, they put the numbers at 15 to 20%. 15 to 20 percent of your of your spacecraft mass that you used to use for all the other crap just to run the engines that's all fuel now so you can just replace all that stuff and just put extra fuel in the, in the tank or more and, and let's not forget that 26 horsepower on earth gravity is one thing 26 horsepower yeah. in space is a completely different yes yes exactly exactly there's you know no friction up there no resistance this is specifically designed for what they call high delta v high velocity change environments where you need to change directions and 26 horsepower like so will go a long way in orbital space when we were talking about uh, ion engines before we we're talking in terms of you know like newtons and micro newtons i mean these are horsepower think of a fig newton think of a horse the comparisons boggle the mind. Have you read, seen, or heard something you think might be interesting to others listening on the spectrum? Send an email to squawk at cardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checkers green, call the ball. Don't get technical with me. Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for July 2016 117,153,000 of about 590,000. 1.407 million registered accounts of about 6,900, and 1.024 million registered ships in the UE fleet of about 5,000. It's been two weeks since we last spoke with you all, so we have a bunch of information pulled from around and reverse the verse shows while we were off. First, for those who follow the CIG news stream on a regular basis, they've implemented some video format changes. Their new goal is to have more, but shorter shows, with 30 minutes being the upper limit. The first most obvious example is the Loremaster's Guide to the Galaxy segment being pulled out of Around the Verse and given its own slot. It will alternate with Bug Smashers on a semi-weekly basis. That's the semi-weekly every two weeks, not semi-weekly twice a week. In the very latest Reverse the Verse, it was revealed that the Argo will be the next concept ship for sale. 
For those of you who lost track, the Argo is a small one-man utility ship mentioned as being available with the Idris. The specific info about what it does states the Argo can retrieve escape pods. Nothing else about its functions has been revealed so far. Given its size and current status, this will probably be another snub ship like the Merlin or the Dragonfly. Special bonus, however, it will be flyable in 2.5. CIG says that 2.5 will be ready for Gamescon and that 2.6 is a possibility, assuming it's ready by then. Apart from the flyable Argo, major features of 2.5 will include the Gremhex Criminal Spawn and Landing Zone, a flyable Reliant, and new shop items. Devs are hard at work on the bangle and make a lot out of its size. They say an Idris can fit, but not fly, in the main hangar bay. And at least one of the turrets on the ship is roughly the same size as the Idris. Also, the LA office has been spending a lot of time basically redoing the female character model from scratch to match the skeleton up with the male one. Full details of the efforts are covered in the past two ATV episodes. Two weeks ago now, CIG hosted their monthly Reverse the Verse, where subscribers are the ones submitting the questions. This time they pulled in some of the infrastructure people to talk about why Jeff can't download any patches. They did address the patching issue to say that they're working on it, and they feel bad that with three builds a day, the backers usually only get to see the third. They pinned a lot of their issues on two things. First, Star Citizen is the first MMO that's cloud-hosted which presents special problems like keeping multiple instances up and running and not having a networking infrastructure on site. Also, the scale of Star Citizens is orders of magnitude above something like WoW. They gave an example of a character in the well needing to persist with up to hundreds of items, but in Star Citizen, the ship plus equipment can equal thousands of items in terms of background code. For those who have a background in infrastructure or server network setups, CIG DevOps engineer Ahmed goes into a lot of technical detail about the CIG's infrastructure setup. I gotta watch that. It's roughly 30 minutes into the video, and we encourage interested backers to check it out. Well, that's interesting. Especially you. Huh? Yeah, that's, yeah. Interesting. I probably would have done something a little bit different, but that's just... <laughs> Well, we have in the past covered a couple of these uh, things, not not in depth, but the fact that they are running things in the cloud will probably be an asset farther down the line, being able to spin up servers and stuff as they go. But in the development stage, it's, right. it seems to be kind of a hindrance. It is, it is, and 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 this is where and this is where the fault lies. With you know, I get a lot of people asking me, should I cloud or should I on premise? And, and the fact is, is that each individual need will determine what is best suited for you. In this particular instance, I probably would have, uh, because of the scope of the project, I probably would have built on-premise infrastructure with a cloud-based backend or mirror. In this case, that everything I do in the in the infrastructure, I would have done in the cloud, and that way I can test how it performs locally versus how it performs in the cloud. Given their funding, I don't think that would have been too big of a project for them, or you know, out of this, out of the scope of, of what they can accomplish. But that's just me. And storage tends to be relatively cheap. It's very compared cheap. to a lot of things. Oh so. yeah, it's very cheap. Well, and I want to go back to our lingua franca Star Trek Online um, about the number of items. Um, we I, I've had many conversations in the past with the developers over there, and 
the paper dolls that uh, you have in Star Trek Online go into the hundreds of items easily. And one of the things that they constantly struggled with were the number of items and modifiers and powers and tweaks and skills and everything else that went into your characters. You know, in Star Trek, you had your walking around character and he had all, he or she had all the little things. Then you have possibly dozens of starships. Each of them has various items and upgrades on it. CIG is tackling something along those lines. And if they have, you know, every little weapon has an upgrade or a mod potential to it. Uh, yeah, I can see how that expands exponentially. Plus the, the Moby Glass probably does a great deal in increasing the count of objects. Because every single one of those items that rest on a ship is going to have to have some sort of graphical interface on the Moby Glass as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, I liken the, how they used WoW as an example. I mean, and they should have gone further. They could have used WoW as a deployment example as well because... I mean, let's face it, after 10, 11 years, I mean, since beta, I've got uh, 16 characters with hundreds and hundreds of items on them, including what's in my, you know, banks and various whatnots and stuff. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, they've done an amazing job of keeping all that together. I mean, they're, they're not stupid. They've gone through many expansions and changes and, and, and still, you know, here we are. And it's still going, so I got to I got to check out that particular part of the video and see what what they're. Well, do they do that? Report back to us next week, okay. uh, Mr. Jeff, if you would please. Certainly. Just briefly touching on the earlier item, did either of you remember that the Argo was a thing? Because I actually had to go look it up. I vaguely remembered it being the sort of uh, utility craft for the big ships. Yeah, like the shuttle pod, like the like if you uh, like Enterprise. Scott Bakula, Star Trek, you know, the little shuttle pods. Yeah. I likened it to that. I was going to say, I remember during the, the initial backer thing when they were selling that big package and what was in it, and I scanned the address, and there was this little bit about, you know, utility craft. But uh, but that's all I remember of it. Yeah, when I saw it, I actually likened it to the, I think they called them work bee things that got yeah. a lot of use in the original Star Trek movies. I think that's the concept. It'll probably, like it's saying here, have, have some little grabbers or something that'll retrieve escape pods and probably put one or two guys in a small crate in it, maybe. But yeah, it's just, it's the utility, utility ship. The biggest news from Descent Underground is the latest build on its way of testing includes co-op play. The promised feature is accompanied by the Goliath and Warlock ships, and our latest information indicates it's live already. Meanwhile, the art team has been working on a new skin and material system to make the bots look all nice and pretty. As for the engine issues plaguing the developers before, most of the significant bugs have been solved, but challenges have appeared related to the VR integration. Yes, apparently with the skin changes, the, the wingman has been doing some fashion modeling. That's apparently some inside baseball that I'm not privy to. But anybody who's uh, following maybe on the uh, on the underground, if you remember the underground, you, you might get that joke. Ken Shadow had some inside baseball, and I didn't get it. Did you get it, Ostron? I, no, no, I was okay, completely okay. out of it. All right. But it, I did watch uh, Wingman's Hangar, and, you know, the, Rob and Eric are always, you know, highly entertaining. So, uh, but I didn't, I didn't see anything that would, that, uh, that would indicate any fashion modeling type stuff. I would pay money to see Eric do the catwalk. I mean, I really would. I think that's... That's their next crowdfunding stretch goal, I think, is that if they raise a certain amount of money for something, 
Eric will sashay down the catwalk. Uh, I'd, I'd watch that. That would get my support. I know Bay Studios has released a couple of Infinity Battlescape news updates in the two weeks we've been off, so we'll bring it to speed here. They did try to push a patch out at the 11th hour, however, they ran into some blockers that delayed it, largely due to the patching system itself. The system was originally created way back in the days of Kickstarter and hasn't been updated since. Putting it nicely, it had become a bit of a mess. Since then, they've created a new shiny launcher-patcher-kitchen-sink combo that handles distribution, installation, and packaging like nobody's business. With the new patcher in place, Inove hopes to roll out the patch OMG really soon TM, hopefully by the time this show airs. On the art side, work continues up on finishing the land-based mock-ups and the cockpits for the smaller ships. The geometry work on the cockpits is coming along very nicely, and the texturing phase has already begun. No more bland gray geometry. For those of you who are interested in the nitty-gritty details of how they're texturing their ships, you can read a post by one of Inovi's artists detailing the process on their forms. Links will be in the show notes. It does go into a nature of doodads, greebles, and indeed weightly vertiges, but it's still a fascinating read that ends with one line. Overall, I think this setup will allow us a good quality level for the time that we can spend on the cockpits. On to making more detailed textures and decal details. Yay. Well, I thought that was brilliant, Jeff. That was well done. Yeah, very nice. Very okay. That was good. That was good. Thank you. Your developer voice is coming along nicely. Oh, uh, thank you very uh, much. That's a good character for you. That, that's very good. I like these smaller shops that are coming into roadblocks with the, you know, like the kitchen sink parts, the back end stuff. You know, even CIG is having still having you know issues with their patching system jeff can't get his because they're all 20 gig patches i mean you know it's 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 that backbone stuff of how do you actually deliver a game in the era of digital distribution no cds no packaging it's just we can push the data whenever we want but we actually have to still package it first not the old-fashioned packaging but we still have to get it in deliverable format and that becomes a challenge for everybody on this on this end a couple of things have got to happen they they I won't get into the whole, you know, FCC broadband thing, but, you know, really, we need a, a infrastructure change here in, you know, 80% of the UN- United States. But that's a different topic and a different discussion all entirely. The other is, is that game companies have got to realize that 80% of their population is stuck with slow uh, and cumbersome connections. And so they can't just deliver these large patches over time and and time again that say half my playtime is is you know invested in downloads it's it seems to me like it's one of those things that we have taken for granted the size of downloads right i mean net neutrality and and all these other things we've, we've discussed over the years here at the podcast but we all take for granted the amount of data that we can use is more or less unlimited Sure, if you if you do 300 gigabytes a month, you're going to get a nasty gram from your provider, maybe. But still, 300 gigs is a lot. But it's not a lot if you download 10 30-gig patches, or if you're watching a lot of Netflix while you're downloading five 30-gig patches. And I'm blaming both consumers and uh, providers on this, is that we all take for granted the amount of bytes that we consume. Patching and launching and uh, distribution may become a more significant part of these crowdfunded and independent studios headache that look our customers are going to have to deal with limited bandwidth we're going to have to become much more efficient and much more structured in how we correct our mistakes 
we shouldn't be pushing something unless it is more polished and more tested. Yeah, and th- and this goes back to our earlier discussion of the cloud stuff too, because right now the game might be hosted in the cloud, but I play it on my PC. I am not playing it in the cloud. And until our connectivity gets uh, to a point where we can actually play the game from the cloud, then really the back end doesn't really matter on how it's delivered. Well, yeah, not for gameplay, maybe, but for synchronization and cheating and all that kind of right. stuff it does. Now, if I may break in with the devil's advocate argument at this point. Oh, please do. All of the games that you're saying have issues with overbearing patch download size are technically not released. Like, they're all in alpha build and, you know, everybody has testing access at at the moment. So the argument could be made that they're not really responsible for producing completely optimized and size-adjusted patches because they're not delivering finished products. There's, you know, the people who signed up to get access would have seen and probably skimmed over or completely ignored all of the warnings and caveats and exceptions that say, look, this is an alpha build. It's not optimized for graphical processing or CPU utilization, and it's obviously not optimized for size. But, I mean, if you go over to, like, Elite Dangerous hasn't been pushing out impossible-to-download patches, have they? No, 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 no. I mean, they're they're much more spaced out. Yeah, and they're and, and they're they're large, but they're not overly large. I agree with you, but I also have a uh, have a little side to that because how much of that? What was it last time? Eighteen gigs or twenty gigs? That um, I'm currently halfway through. How much of that is the same files? Really? I mean, how much of that is all new content and all new change files? I mean, because really all I'm doing is re-downloading the whole game again. Yeah, I'm not saying there probably aren't relatively simple solutions to make the patch smaller, but uh, again, it's it's an issue of allocating resources to do that when you're still in the middle of developing the core basis of the game. Well, and I th- if there's one thing that, and again, we've said this multiple times in the show, if there's one thing that we should all be watching Star Citizen for, and all these other indie games too, is lessons for best practices and so on. It's not a problem now, for the most part. If you have a high-speed connection and a relatively high data cap, it's not that big a deal to download an unoptimized patch or people who haven't figured out their launcher systems to a, to a T yet. It's not that big of a deal. But I think the day is coming when people who would be attracted to an alpha situation or an early access game or something where they're willing to take their chances on big patches will start to say, maybe I'm not going to do that because, you know, it'll enter the consciousness of of the average user that I do have perhaps some limitation on my ability to use the data and these guys are not ready for prime time. I'm not going to waste my somewhat limited bandwidth on helping them test the game. I'm not that interested. So not it's going to cut off a revenue source for these developers, and it's going to uh, decrease the amount of you know bug testing and, and uh, balance testing that these early access type situations encourage. Yeah, that's true. Um, I just don't know if I mean it's time will tell whether you know the proliferation of high bandwidth accessibility for the general populace outpaces 
the need for these smaller developers to start focusing on optimization in order to retain their alpha testing base. Longtime listeners of the show may recall that way back in episodes 1 through 5, we used to start the show by explaining what guard frequency was, the real actual guard frequency. And that's a specific frequency that all aircraft and control towers should be monitoring constantly, 121.5 MHz or 243 megahertz if you're in the military. If someone out there is lost, having engine failure, panic attack, or some other in-flight emergency, they may send a mayday on that channel. Other pilots or towers in the area will answer back on that channel with instructions or directions to get you back to smooth level flying. Or if you're crashing and burning, they'll know where to send the rescue parties. Well, listener Splice Point recently transmitted on the guard, saying, quote, My fine investigative space sim podcast journalist friends, I implore you for any details regarding the status of a Kickstarter space sim limit theory by Josh Parnell. Updates became more sporadic months ago, and there's been little news in recent months about the game's development. Any insight? Over and out. Splice point. Well, our patented guard frequency research badgers did some digging. And unfortunately, news is indeed very thin on the ground. In fact, the last major update was covered by us in episode 112, which aired on March 22nd. We did, however, manage to find a few little things around the web, and we thought we'd bring them to our listeners. First up, on May 10th, Josh made a post on the Limit Theory forums, letting us know that May was a bit of a busy month for him and starting with some time in mid-June, is when we'll start to see the pedal being put to the middle. We've had to dial back from 10 to 7 in the past month due to planning and navigating major changes in real-life situations. But come June and July, I'll be in position to return to 10. I also estimate that somewhere around the time will be a crossing point where the state of the engine and the game surpass the old implementation in terms of completeness. So far, so good, and like Josh says, don't mistake a 7 for a 0. He's still making progress, just not full tilt. About a month after that, and therefore a month ago today, Josh then made a post on Reddit, links will be in the show notes, discussing how he'd love to be able to implement procedural cities, landing sites, cultures, civilizations, ship interiors, basically a fully procedural game, but he knows that for a one-man band this is a tall order. He's also posted that he's very excited to see what the modders out there in the community will be able to do with the game, and that he's making the game very mod-friendly, even going so far as to say, honestly, at this point, the game is more or less open source, so virtually everything is moddable. No more news on when a demo version is likely to drop. In fact, there's not even a solid hint, as far as our research badgers could tell. However, Josh does take some time on his Reddit post to address concerns about having to start the engine over from scratch, saying, quote, Please understand that I didn't dump the game and start over. Starting on a new foundation is very different from starting over. It's the ideas that take 99% of the time, not the code. I didn't lose any ideas when I moved to the new system. In fact, I gained many. The code is hardly even a concern in comparison to finishing the remaining ideas. After all, much of the code is a solid order of magnitude easier to express now big happy face. We here at Guard Frequency are very excited for this little space sim that could, and so we too hope there's more news on the ground from Camp Limit Theory in the future. However, for the time being at least, it does seem as if things are still maybe ticking along. Yeah, this one is kind of at the opposite end of all the other space sims we cover. It's you know a one-man show, and he's been cranking away at it for three or four years. I know in the past, uh, Josh had some you know personal life issues that had to bring the game's development to a halt for a while, but that's 
literally the risk you take when the guy sells you a project as a one-man show. Life happens, uh, so you got to uh, cut people some slack for that. But uh, no, it, this the Limit Theory game, I think, is another one that's going to be, once it gets out, will probably be interesting take on the space sim genre. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, I, I'm kind of interested in it, too, uh, though, you know, this is one of those that uh, if it comes, it comes. If it doesn't, I'm not hurt by it. It's an interesting, I mean, I see it sort of as a proof of concept level project, like can one person build a double or triple A level space sim just on their own? Unfortunately, I don't think, at least based on some of the comments I saw when I was helping with the research, it's there are some people that just aren't even willing to give a little slack to the poor developer just based on his unique situation. Like some of them are giving him the same sort of flack that like Star Citizen got over a month delay. Yeah, it's one thing when someone builds up a giant company and has you know, multinational blah blah blahs and touts their previous experiences and all this kind of stuff and cites prior IPs as example and current IPs as you know things that we're going to beat. And then there's the one guy who has a passion project and a cool idea. And you'd like to see him succeed, right? That's more, that's art, man. You don't know if that's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to be good or bad or whatever at the end. The first thing is more, you know, it's a big project and it's a big, you know, they're, they're, they're proceeding on their reputation and, their, and their, their bulk and their heft to get something done. I'm willing to cut this guy a lot more slack. Yeah, I, I just think that in a way, I think Star Citizen, like, messed up people's perceptions of yeah. crowdfunding because I, agree. I mean if you're if you're crowdfunding a normal project you've got to understand it's like it's exactly what you said this is a pipe dream project probably by a small group or even an individual and the whole reason they're coming to crowdfunding is because they have no way of acquiring the capital on their own and part of that is the reason they can't acquire any of the capital on their own is the people with it won't be of the opinion that they can get it done. So it's sort of a gamble. Well, he, I mean, he could have gone the full Chris Roberts way and, you know, made a company and hired developers and stuck with the crowdfunding and push, 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 you know, and put out, you know, little trinkets for people to, you know, purchase so that even fund it more. And, you know, um, dare I say, di That's... digital assets. <laughs> oh, but that, I mean, honestly, you know, at our sister show, Priority One, we crowdfunded a, uh, uh, we crowd did a crowdfunding project a couple years ago. It worked. It was it was it, it was a success. But man, just the the sheer amount of logistical effort to keep track of prizes and to ship them and and to get all the stuff in line to to for the fulfillment and and, for, and to acquire those prizes. It's just it's a nightmare. And we have we've got a pretty substantial volunteer team at, at Priority One. You know, there's a there's a dozen people that we can call on for help for little bits and pieces. But if it's your one guy. Man, it'd be practically impossible. Practically impossible to do something. My like that. brother actually runs a uh, a board game cafe, and they crowdfunded no. to get some startup, and they had tangible gifts for different pledge tiers. And he said that coordinating all of that and shipping all of it out was like almost as much work as getting incorporated as a business in terms of like man hours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all the nuances and details and paperwork and, yeah. It, it, did he have help? Did, did he have some employees or family or anything like that? Uh, a little bit, but the lion's share of the work was just him and his wife. 
and it took it took them a good while and they were just doing like custom made d6 dice packs and occasionally t-shirts and that still was a, a herculean effort it's a lot of work for small groups of people for a single person forget it it's not happening yeah the one thing that really interests me is about this game and getting back to the game is that um the one thing he did say that that really piqued my interest was the uh the modability and hoping that the game you know one of the things i loved about free space and star lancer and and those games was was the the community that got around and made these you know great packages to play and extend the game life um and I still go back and play them. I mean, they're still great, uh, great to do. And I think that's really cool that that this is going to be one of those games that, you know, the developers behind the modders and and there are people out there that love doing this too. Talented people, that, you know. Yeah. So I I think it will do well based on that fact because there's not other games out there right now that let you do that. I agree. I mean, the, assuming he's successful, you know, hoping he's successful, it, it sounds like he could be providing a canvas for a lot of other people to work on, and that you know, that that will be greatly appreciated. So, uh, Josh, we're out there. We're rooting for you. Keep on keeping on, man, and uh, hope to hope to see some good progress soon. But now it's time for news we didn't use. No Man's Sky has officially gone gold, meaning that the final release build of the game ready to go to August 8th release. Another competition-winning paint job is being added to the Elite Dangerous store this week. Arrowhead by Commander Latoris can be yours for only £3. That's about 20 cents merc in these days. Thank you, Brexit. The CIG monthly report will have already come out by the time you hear this, but as usual, CIG did not consult with Guard Frequency staff, so we didn't have time to review it or write up any sort of a summary. Tune in next week for our breakdown. Not our breakdown. We're not going to break down. That's Bre- breakdown of the breaking summer. it down. I, I think another letter. I, I think another letter. A terse letter to the CEO from the board here should uh, be forthcoming to them for <laughs> you know uh, for, for them not in, uh, sending us with regards to consultation. Well. Right. All, all we have to do is elect a board first, and we'll get right on. Yeah. Oh, you know, <laughs> details, details, details. Okay, Elite Dangerous has close quarter combats in its arena. Star Citizen has Arena Commander. And Descent Underground's core is a PvP cage match in space. With each incarnation of gameplay, the term eSports is occasionally thrown around in the forums and updates. Legitimate eSports competitions have arisen around games such as League of Legends, StarCraft, and Counter-Strike. With real money prizes and often enough actual play-by-play announcers and commentators giving the news coverage to the events. So bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. All that may be fine for a game like Descent or StarCraft, where most of the gameplay centers around PvP competition and non-persistent skirmishes. But what about Elite and Star Citizen? Those games feature wide open universes and PvP arenas being only a very small part, yet people have still talked about their game modes moving into the eSport format. Should features like Elite's recently announced Icarus Cup be encouraged to attract attention and press to the game? 
or will it cause development on the rest of the game to suffer as programmers struggle to guarantee a level professional playing field? Gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate for us the esports aspects of the open universe space sims. Osteron was recently sanctioned by the International Pokemon League for fixing last spring's Pikachu vs. Squirtle featherweight title fight and has forfeited the starting position. That's still under appeal. So, Tony, why should the Open Universe games be developing and encouraging esports aspects of gameplay? Jeff, esports provide an additional mode of gameplay for people that aren't interested in, say, a narrative story or mining or crafting or whatever. It does provide an outlet that people can observe and not just participate in. So not only are you going to be bringing in people with a different desire for gameplay, you're going to bring in people that don't even want to play and just are entertained merely by observing other people having a good time with your product. All right, and Osteron, your response? The problem is that when you bring all of these new people in, you bring in their money, but their money is solely focused through the esports venue, which means that now the game developer's focus is more on the esports venue because that's where the money's coming from. And therefore, the rest of the game becomes a lower priority, which is a massive problem if 80% of your game is all open universe that people are supposed to have new content for. Tony. Ostron, you unpunctual commentator. I think that that's a management problem, not a problem with esports itself. If you sell your game as an open universe and your focus goes off at open universe because of a few flashy lights and you know glitzy press coverage, that's a problem with management and customer service, not the concept of an esport itself, which should just bring in more people to those other parts of the game. And Osteron, your rebuttal, please. Tony, you complete sellout. If you have a management that is focused on keeping the company solvent, whether it's a company backed by large publishers or a smaller company, they have to focus on where the money's going. If all the money is going to esports viewers, they have an obligation to focus on that part of the game. It doesn't become an issue of, what did we promise? It's an issue of what's the reality now. All right. All right, Jeff. What do you say? You've heard both sides. Well, render judgment. You both make excellent points, but I think I'm going to have to go with Osteron on this one. If the appeal and the draw of the money that comes in is due to how well one does esports in their game, then the focus they follow the money. That's what they do. And I have seen little yet from uh, Star Citizen. Elite may not be so bad, but I've seen little yet from Star Citizen that says they don't follow the money. So it could be end up being pretty detrimental uh, in the long run, I think. I, I think I came down the side that I would take in real life, you know, if it wasn't just, you know, assigned to me. But I think that having an eSport component is fine. I think that it's as long as it really truly is just marketing, as long as it just really truly is a loss leader. I mean, if you look at it that way and see is it, use it as a vehicle to get more people into your MMO universe, right? You use it as, a, you know, it has cool graphics and, and fun gameplay. And there's some people that if you practice a lot, you can get really, really good and do lots of cool stuff with it. You make it aspirational, right? Like one day, maybe you could be this cool. If you use it that way, 
then I think it's fine. But if you if it becomes an end in and of itself, I think that's where. It, it goes well, you remember the Marie so. Marie Cup thing that they had in? Uh, yeah, uh, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I when that first came out, I practiced a lot because it it was hard, especially with the the current state of the game and the, and the jittery and the lockups and the you know. But I, you know, I wanted to get around the track and I wanted to, you know, do it and do it well. And I, you know, I thought, well, this would be kind of cool if this was an actual thing. And then, and then I thought, wait, we're talking about competition here. And we're talking about, uh, there's going to be all kinds of, you know, like little cheats here. And, and, uh, you know, it's going to get so competitive that, that people are going to forget that, that it's a game, you know, and then, then it, I, haven't done it since <laughs> just yeah and the the other thing that i noticed um from some of the other game genres that i play is like for example with counter-strike which is a first person shooter and it's got a competitive scene and then recently the game overwatch came out which is also a first person shooter basically and one of the things that people started that the people who came over from like the competitive scene were complaining about or saying was an issue was they said that they were complaining about what they called the tick rate on the animations for weapon projectiles and that was one of those things where they started complaining about it and the developers knew what they were talking about but 90% of the audience had no clue because it's an aspect of the game programming and optimization that is so far into the minutia that in any other arena, it just never becomes a factor. Like, you have to be playing at such a high level to notice that that's even a thing, that it doesn't apply to 90% of the population. But if you are competing at a very high skill level that actually does have an impact on the outcome of the game and the developers have to start paying attention to that level of minutia in order to guarantee a level playing field tail wagging the dogs kind of situation yeah yeah and that's and that's exactly what i fear is going to happen a lot of these that incorporate these competitive play into them you know i thought the murray cup would be fun you know Oh, man, I got around the track. All right. The other thing that sort of separates Elite and Star Citizen from Descent Underground and, and, you know, your examples, Overwatch and Counter-Strike, is that those games are instances, right? You load into a skirmish, and it lasts for 90 seconds, 10 minutes, whatever the length of the battle is supposed to be, and then it disappears. And then your reward is presented to you in the real world. You, know, you earn money or you go up in the rankings or something else that's outside of that gameplay instance. In an MMO-type environment, if you do well in the game environment, your reward should be in that persistent universe somewhere. And if it comes out of the persistent universe, I think that's where you maybe have crossed a line somehow and have started to do the tail wagging the dog thing where people are, you know, since it's a real-world reward, their human interaction, like saying you know, the weapon tick rate, that's a millisecond type measurement that has to do with the clicking of the mouse on your on your key on your on your hand, you know, your physical hand, and the reaction on the screen. And you start that sort of user interface issue uh, takes precedence over gameplay once the reward comes out of the game universe. Yeah, and that was sort of the the focus because I mean, going esport for a game like Descent 
kind of makes perfect sense because that, like you said, that's the whole point, more or less, is you've got single instances and it's all PvP. There's no larger universe for them to maintain. I mean, they're going to have a single-player campaign, but it's largely self-contained and one has no influence on the other. Well, now you know our thoughts on it. We want to hear yours. So this week's community question, does introducing esports aspects in an open universe space sims increase playability and press for the games? Or does it merely suck development resources away from producing quality content to fill a larger universe? Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com. Now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendlies! So let's just be friendly! Some say the Mexicans have a 20-foot statue of him named El Chivo, and that he spends his weekends half-submerged in a bathtub of Cheerios. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he helped put together this week's feedback. Do multiple single-purpose ships ensure you're doing jobs with the best tools possible, or is the convenience of a multi-purpose hull a better option? That was the community question when we last spoke two weeks ago, and you weighed in thusly. Krell writes in and says, Single-roll versus multi-roll ships. First, I'm not a fan of single-use hulls. The Constellation variants are a great example. I would much rather have the variation come from equipment used, not baked into the core hull itself. Second, my issue with single-use builds has much more to do with PvP versus PvE, as you guys discussed a couple weeks back. If I'm mining, flying a ship optimized for mining, and I get jumped by a ship configured for fighting, I should run or die. I shouldn't be able to build an effective fighting ship that is also a dedicated miner. On the other hand, if I'm set up for fighting, it shouldn't matter whether I'm fighting another player or an AI. The same combat build should work for both. As I said before, no EVE-style PvE versus PvP builds. Finally, I'll be catching your next episode late as I'm renewing vows with my wife of 24 years next week, and by the time of your next cast, I'll be on a beach in Mexico not thinking about internet spaceships. Smiley face. <laughs> I hope he's not thinking about internet spaceships. Keep up the good work, and hopefully the best damn space sim ever will become worthy of the best damn space sim podcast ever. Well, congrats on 24 years, Krell. Indeed. 24, it's a long time. Yes. Silent Hunter writes in and says, Dear Guard Frequency, just finished listening to your latest podcast. Wanted to give my thoughts on a couple things in the wonderful world of the space sim. First, in response to your community question, I have to say the generalization versus specialization debate is ultimately dependent on what you want to do in a given game. If you're a major miner, pun intended, then a dedicated mining ship would be the way to go. If you just want to haul cargo, get something big like a Miss C. Then he goes on to say, 2.4 has some useful new features, but until we start getting customizable character appearance rather than a world full of clones, it's not yet what I signed up for. 2.5 seems to offer a lot more in this regard. The game's taking a lot longer than anticipated when I signed up, but it'll come to fruition someday. I have plenty to keep me occupied in the meantime. Finally, I've just come back from a trip to Scotland where I took the journey to and from London on the Caledonian Sleeper. Designers of spacecraft and games would do well to look at the design of the sleeper compartments, which aim to put the maximum number of passengers in a space while maintaining comfort. Hence the use of folding tables, beds that convert to seats, and a mirror on the door. Keep up the good work. Sean Newboy writes in and says, The multi-purpose ship is more lore-friendly. Most pilots would not have a hangar with a bunch of ships. But a single-purpose ships are better at what they are intended to do. Love the show, everyone. 
H. Allen wrote in and said, Thanks for the holiday weekend warning. I guess I looked to some previous episodes to listen to next week. If I recall correctly, Squadron 42 allows for Persistent Universe friends to join you in mission, drop-in, drop-out co-op, which is similar to joining friends in the Star Citizen Persistence Universe. That's why PU development extends to Squadron 42. As for this week's question, when we find out how easy it is to switch ships, crews, components, etc. from one hangar location to wherever we happen to be in the PU, that will determine if it's better to take it all with you in a multi-purpose ship when you launch into the deep black. Rentaspoon says, just to point out, after Jeff made that poor taste joke, we gotta see the dragonfly and white box flying about, so keep at it, Jeff. CIG, just give us the white box models to test fly already. As long as I can take a base ship and turn it into a top-of-the-range ship, I don't care. It can cost more or glow in the radar, I don't mind, but the issue with multi-purpose ships is that usually there's one ship that never makes sense to buy, as it's worse than the rest. I'm looking at you, Cutlass. Also, after listening to you talk about Elite so much, I bit the bullet and bought it for the second time. Registrations and login issues almost made me ask for a refund the second time, but I got it to work, I picked up a mission, started making jumps, and misjudged one and ran out of fuel. Could have done with some guard frequency help, but it was 4th of July weekend, so never mind. Oh, I'm so... Boy, that fuel thing. Yep. They ha- okay, now, now there's the guard frequency isn't exactly up and running in the Elite Dangerous world. It doesn't. It's not a thing. But they have something called the Fuel Rats. It's an uh, uh, in-game group of people. I mean, they're, they're like a guild almost. And their sole purpose and dedication is to actually bring fuel to stranded spaceships. There's a fuel transfer mechanic that you can do in the game. And so the next time, hop on the forums and do a search for the fuel rats. And if there's somebody in game, you can broadcast a distress message to them via the forums or, or whatever. And they'll have somebody jump out to you with some gas. So, yeah, that fuel mechanic uh, almost makes some people just throw their hands up and quit on Elite when you first find out about that and you get stranded somewhere in your little sidewinder. That's rough. And when Elite finally brings in the corpse or guild, whatever game you're playing, guard frequency will be a presence there and you can get us on the guard. In the meantime, help is available. Just look for fuel rats. Oh, uh, before we get on to the general, I wanted to go back to Mr. Newboy. He makes a really good point. And the fact that a single pilot without a large corporation behind him would probably only have one ship, maybe two or one in a junker, you know, something that he's working on. In the, in, you know, I kind of think of that roguish uh, space captain that was in that one TNG episode that was, you know, so long ago. Anyway. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, Okana. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And that was a good character. They should have brought him back. I know. I I, lo- yeah. I loved him. He was great. Man, you're right. That was a missed opportunity. Man, that was a long time ago. Um, but uh, when you think about it, that's how most citizens would probably live unless, unless they were working with a big corporation. Now, a corporation, yeah. on the other hand, would have many multi-purposed ships. When I mean by multi-purposed, they would have specific ships to do specific jobs whether it be a multi-purpose ship to run cargo and or be quickly turned into a hospital or whatever it is, they would have the funds and the means and the pilots and the staff to work that out. Yeah. So that one brief paragraph <laughs> was spot on. I want to talk about uh, H. Allen's comment. Uh, Squadron 42 is not going to have a robust co-op system. 
Um, I think there's going to be some missions where you can co-op, but I don't. It's not going to be. Not er, yeah, not, not the entire game. Yeah, as originally envisioned, right. it's not going to be that way. Yeah, I think we heard that from. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, it was. It's, it's, it's been a while. Yeah, it was one of those things that was initially promised, and then I don't think there was ever a specific cutoff point. I think it just sort of eroded over time, and yeah. like first it yeah. was. Oh, you can do drop-in co-op. Then it was like, well, you can only do drop-in co-op on the missions, not the whole storyline. And then it became, well, you know, they can't always fly. They might just be, like, doing Rio ops for some missions. And then it was, now they can only drop in on some missions. And that's yeah, where I, we are now. Back in the day, uh, we discussed it a little bit. And I think, basically, when I designed missions in Star Trek Online using their Foundry tool... It's real hard to write a narrative that helps uh, a multiple-player squad feel like they're in the mission. And with Chris Roberts' heavy focus on a mo-cap, cinematic, Wing Commander-type sequel where you're the hero in the center of attention, having your buddy with you, you know, your real-life buddy with you, doesn't make a lot of sense when you're trying to you know, establish a story that Mark Hamill is your buddy, right? You yeah. Know? Uh, you, you want you want Mark Hamill as your to be your buddy. You know, no offense, Jeff. No offense, Ostron. But if I have Luke freaking Skywalker as my wingman versus you guys, I'm gonna go with Luke Skywalker. Hey, just my happen. kung fu is much stronger. <laughs> so as the game developed, I think that the importance of the narrative versus the utility and fun that you get by dropping co-op, I think that equation changed. So. And a general feedback, Zenoin says, It's possible the size for the galaxy map is supported and the item amounts is the problem. In fact, that's my personal belief that the engine is having problems with supporting the amount of objects, not the size of the maps. And I think that, uh, Zenoin, your opinion was borne out by the uh, CIG broadcast this week. Juru writes in and says, Your issues with the full system may be unfounded. What it sounds like to me is the full system hasn't been done yet. Making a 30 AU size which is the radius from Neptune through Sol, map, has been done, but putting planets, asteroids, and stations in them has not. Then, like any other game level, make sure it's fun. Saying that a feature like 64-bit maps can be considered done if they can make a ship fly the distance from edge to edge is possible, but that doesn't mean it's bug-free or fun. I believe the size of the map is no longer a technical issue, but a gameplay issue. Motoshi writes in and says, Thanks for sharing the link. I have now subscribed on iTunes. I didn't realize you also covered Elite, colon, Dangerous, and Infinity, colon, Battlescape, as well as Star, colon, Citizen. A colon is mandatory in Space Sims names nowadays, so Star, colon, Citizen may as well fall in line. Okasi writes in and says, Three weeks into listening, and damn, maybe this really is the best Space Sim podcast out there. Love the mix of humor and intelligence, guys. Keep up the good work. Not naming names, but this completely replaces a few other podcasts covering Elite Dangerous and Star Citizen that I used to labor through. And he spelled labor the way Lennon would spell labor. So he's a <laughs> British person. Cool. And Actually, we are the best damn space sim podcast ever because we are cute. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Tony, you nobody caught it, but back when I wrote the gray market debate... I consistently spelled gray back and forth every time I wrote it to see if anybody would comment on it. I, I think I think I'm gonna go with your semi and buy thing here. I think, you know, 
semi and vi are like gray and gray with gray with the e and gray with the a. I, I think both are right in both languages. Well, yeah, but traditionally the e is the British spelling and a is the American. I'll go with that because I'm drinking as we speak tea, Earl Grey. <laughs> Ken from Chicago writes in and says, no, hashtag space rust makes spaceships less attractive to hashtag space pirates, hashtag not a bug, hashtag space logic. Odin Omen writes in and says, well, not suggesting guard frequency to all his friends said, great show as usual. Was just on your site yesterday looking for a shirt. So that's my vote. <laughs> Whatever that means. Ah, okay. So he wants us to do guard frequency shirts. Well, we did do guard frequency shirts a couple of years ago. So if you yeah, ask me, if you I, ask me nicely, I, Odin, I'm we're, I'm actually wearing the T-shirt right now. Uh, it, they're they're fantastic T-shirts. They're, yeah. they're wonderful T-shirts. Well, and, you know, I, I kind of like a get a long sleeve shirt though, kind of like a Hensley with the buttons, you know, uh, down the. Mm, yeah, classy. Yeah, that's classy. A Henley. Well, you're up there in the north, so I think that that's like, I mean, everybody wears those up there. Yep, right? that's, yes, we do. Yep, I got a drawer full. I mean, if you're not wearing a Mountie uniform, you're wearing a Henley. All right, we got one vote for shirts and uh, I think two votes for wings. Still internally debating our next guard frequency swag, so we'll see what we got. And this week's community question, does introducing eSports aspects in open universe space sims increase playability and press for the games, or does it merely suck development resources away from producing quality content to fill the larger universe? Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com. So how was the show? Were we championship caliber, or should we just go back to mining and crafting? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave a comment on the show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? Or hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. If you're old school like us, shoot us an email to squawk at GuardFrequency.com. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute. Tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 127 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 128 on July 19th, my birthday. So be sure Happy to keep birthday. an eye out for our shows over on our website, guardfrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feedsguardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything Friday nights, then you can always join us live over at guardfrequency.com forward slash live. We start recording around 11 p.m. Central. That's Saturdays at 5 a.m. GMT. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. You can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just $1.25, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win some Guard Frequency goodies. We want to thank all of our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution. Because the more support we get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. Check out our website, look under the call signs section for details of how you can fly. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to check them out at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Our thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster. Our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards. Our staff writers, Jace Pintad and Kin Shadow. Our producer, Jeff Grant. Hello. And of course, our audio engineer, Michael Duncan. 
A big shout out to our syndication partner at The Base, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit ronaldjenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Reduce thrust. This is episode 127 of the Best Damn Space Sim Podcast Ever, and was recorded on Friday, January 9th, and made available for download Tuesday, July 13th, over at GuardFrequency.com. I'm um, Jeff. I'm sorry, Je- you said January 9th. I, did I say January 9th? Oh my word! <laughs> Time warp! It's going to oh. be a bit of a delay in the release. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we tuned into the feedback loop to let Eugene uh, has designed have designed a 600 cc 20 horsepower engine that will provide a hell uh, have designed a 600 cc 26 horsepower engine that will provide a high delta v orbital proportion. Have you read, seen, heard something you think might be interesting to other citizens? Uh, how long have we been doing this new way? Jeez. And 1.024 million... God, I can't do numbers. Isn't that bi-weekly? Isn't that bi-monthly? No, they're... Semi-monthly. Semi and and bi actually have both definitions as valid, but colloquially, semi usually means every other, or is usually used as every other, and bi is usually used as twice in. I just like how you work the word colloquially in there. Carry on, please. And they always say it's the size that matters, right? They say it's... An- That's not what I do. <laughs> <laughs> on making more detailed textures and decals. Yay! No, you can't You can't start it and finish it. No. No, no, no. You gotta... You gotta... Either you'd redo the whole thing or you bring it home, man. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta bring it home. Well, our patented guard frequency research badgers have did some dugging. Or... Dig, dig some digging, or or <laughs> dug, did dug some digging. Yes, dug he, some digging. Well, our patented gra- <laughs> grad frequency. Yeah. I think it was going to be ground frequency. Yeah, ground frequency. That's good too. I like that. You know what? I completely lost my train of thought because I had to come up with that insult. Can I start okay. my timer all over again? <laughs> okay. Uh, yep. You notice I didn't say the force because I think it's trademarked and I didn't want us to get sued. <laughs> <laughs> We're a commentary show, Jeff. First Amendment. Oh, okay. It's totally fine. Oh. Hokasi writes in and says, three weeks into listening and damn, maybe this really is the base. Oh, I can't, get a compliment right. <laughs> can't even do compliments right. Um, so am I pronouncing the hash? <sighs> Sorry, what? Am I explicitly pronouncing the hashtags here? Sure, why not? Bear with me. One more second. Somebody make good radio. Uh, sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, um, wasting time. Left my home in Georgia, 
Headed for the Frisco Bay. Oh, come on. Somebody pick that up and run with it a little bit. Come on.